As you're seated, if you would turn then in the Scriptures to Romans and chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, particularly looking at verses 13 and 14. Romans 10, 13 and 14. Two verses for our consideration this afternoon. Hear then the Word of God. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? These two verses set before us saving faith. In the midst of our series on conversion, we've come now to this aspect. So you'll remember, of course, that we've considered what conversion is. Fundamentally, it is that radical change whereby one who is dead in their sins and committed to the way of sin is converted, changed, turned to embrace God in Christ and to live for Him. We've seen the need of this being the fact that sin is not only some issue of guilt, it is that, but it's also that reality that we are dead in sin. It has power over us and has permeated our beings so that our very thoughts and wills and desires are influenced and in bondage to sin. So in other words, the great need of man is not just a little up uh, bringing and a little bit of training. It's not a little outward scrubbing and you know, reforming our speech and thoughts and so on. It is a radical, spiritual, divinely wrought work. We considered as well the counterfeit. You'll remember we looked at the life of Simon who was at first that magician and wicked man. And yet at the preaching of Christ, it said that he believed, was baptized, and then followed the disciples. And yet, as his life continued, it was then discovered that as Peter said, that he was still in the gall of bitterness and indeed was still in that sin. And so one may profess faith and even for a season give seeming evidence of being a disciple and yet still be without salvation. So then we looked at the cause last week of conversion, which is the Spirit's work of regenerating or giving the new birth to those who are dead and blind in their sins. With that behind us, we look now to this aspect of conversion, which is saving faith. Scriptures everywhere are calling us to faith. We saw that in God's providence, singing through Psalm 116. We saw that in Joel chapter 2, call on the name of the Lord, which is used in the text before us. Notice in verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see it in Acts 16 and verse 31. What shall I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Notice, what shall I do? Believe. In Romans 1.16, earlier in this epistle, Paul glories in the Gospel, not ashamed of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? 
For it is the power of God unto salvation to whom? To everyone that believeth. Faith. Again, very familiar to us in another epistle, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. And to make it plain and clear, he contrasts that with works. Not of works, lest any should boast. And we can multiply instances. Many will come to your own thoughts and minds. As you think about the emphasis upon faith, the just shall live by faith. All of these different passages flood our souls because the Scriptures are full of this truth. Sinners are called to believe. We've seen, we need not consider it more for our purpose this evening, that the only way they will believe is as the Spirit first works within them, giving them life, that they would come willingly to embrace Jesus Christ. But this evening, we wish to look particularly at what saving faith is. This is important. We've already seen the reason of that. Simon, of course, the magician, was said to believe. There's something that he did that was like unto believing. However, it wasn't saving faith at that point. And we see elsewhere in the Scriptures as well, various instances where people profess faith and yet are without faith. First John tells us of those who are with us and yet they went from us because they were not truly of us. So we have all of these things. And so it's helpful for us to search the Scriptures and ask the question, what is this saving faith by which one believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they are indeed saved? Well, notice the text before us. If we back up and just briefly survey the chapter, you'll notice that Paul is speaking of his desire, verse 1, for Jews to be saved. This is important. So we're talking about saving faith. And notice Paul is talking about his desire that his fellow descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, would themselves be saved. And he commends them. They have a zeal, but he criticizes this is not according to knowledge. Notice verse 3. He says, they being ignorant of God's righteousness. And notice this. They were going about to establish a righteousness that was their own and failed to submit themselves into the righteousness of God. What's the point? Paul's saying, God is saying, here's righteousness. And they're shoving it to the side and saying, I'll go and establish my own. And then Paul identifies. Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Notice the language, to everyone that believeth. Now, if we had the luxury to code through the whole epistle, you would see this theme leap to the fore throughout this epistle. Faith in Jesus Christ. So you think of Romans 4, 5, and 6, or 3, 4, and 5 rather, and how it's talking about justification by faith alone and Christ alone. And now he's coming to this portion where he's saying, My fellow brethren, according to the flesh, the Jews, have had this message proclaimed to them, yet they have failed to believe it. What have they failed to believe? They have failed to believe upon Jesus Christ. So we see that before us. It's important to note that in the context. And you'll notice from verse 6 through verse 13, he talks about 
the receiving of this salvation. It's not that we go up and do what we would perform, verse 6, that we would descend down and bring Christ again from the dead, verse 7, but rather that we would heed the word which is a faith which Paul and others were preaching. What is that word? Verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So notice this. It's not a general concept of salvation that Paul is dealing with, but with the specific biblical way that faith must trust in Jesus Christ. And so Christ Himself says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. We see in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, there is no other name given among men whereby, notice the language, we must be saved. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only is the way of salvation. And yet, as here and elsewhere is being shown, it is Jesus Christ embraced by faith. So we get to our text, and Paul's making this point that Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, whoever it is that calls upon Him shall be saved. So we have it before us. Verse 6, verse 13 rather, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Joel 2, verse 32. Whosoever, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, doesn't matter. Whoever it is that calls upon Him shall be saved. But then Paul opens up for our understanding greater clarity. And he's working, as it were, backwards to the need for preachers. That's not our point this evening, though you can see it in the text. He says, How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Finally, verse 17, Then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We wish to look at verse 14 as it helps clarify for us the nature of saving faith. Because if you understand what Paul's saying, you can see what is essential to saving faith. So notice, what does a preacher do? He preaches Christ. So we must hear about Christ. We must know about Christ. If we don't know about Christ, then we can't trust in Christ. But then he says, if we're working backwards, the preacher tells us about Christ and then we believe in Him. But he's not yet talking about saving faith there. Because it's the calling upon Him that is the saving faith. When he's using the word here in verse 14, believe in Him, he's talking about agreeing and acknowledging that's the Savior. And so you have the historically identified biblical aspects of saving faith. There's knowledge. I know who the Savior is. There is assent. I acknowledge that He's the Savior. And there is trust. I embrace Him as mine. Without that last part, which is first in verse 14, the calling on Him, there's no saving faith. Think of this for a moment. There are multitudes who are content 
with merely knowing Jesus is the Savior. And multitudes who are content to say, I know that He would save me, and yet have never called on the name of the Lord. Without that calling on Him, they indeed are without salvation. To call on Him, one must agree that He is the Savior. To agree with Him, one must understand that He's the Savior. And to understand that He's the Savior, someone must tell us of Him. Which, praise to God, God Himself has given us His Word and has appointed preachers to that end. We wish to look particularly at saving faith. Firstly, looking at what saving faith knows. Secondly, at what saving faith believes or agrees with or acknowledges. And thirdly, what saving faith itself does. All of which, by God's grace, would help us both to ask the question, do I have saving faith? And if we discover that we don't, oh, how we see then the great need we have of His gift of grace. And if we discover we do, then what cause there is for great rejoicing that He has ever given us so high a privilege. So firstly then, what is it that saving faith knows? You'll notice, as we look at verses 13 and 14, we can say this, saving faith knows the Savior and the way of salvation by Him. This is something important for our day and age. The world tells us, and oh, how foolish that men and women in the church adopt it, that faith is blind. You need to take a leap of faith. Blind faith. Wherever that comes from, brethren, it doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible nowhere calls you to be blind in your faith. Everywhere the Bible is shining light and giving truth and arguments and historical records and evidences and promises and histories and all these things. Think about the very nature of preaching. It is the declaring of the truth of God's will. Nowhere in the Bible is there a call or demand of God to believe something you don't know. Rather, there is the call to believe what God is making known. And so it's important for us to see this. Saving faith. Where there is saving faith, there is an understanding of the way of salvation. Now we need to be clear, this doesn't mean that everyone could write an essay or a treatise or a book expounding every aspect of salvation. It may be very simple. They may simply know this, what For instance, as mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 16, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If I trust in the Lord, I'm saved. That may be all that they understand. But they will know this. The Lord Jesus Christ. Those three words are of great importance. He is the Lord. The Lord God. He is Jesus, the Savior. He is the Christ, the Anointed One who is prophet, priest, and king. Now, we don't need to expand that to exhausting detail before one can be saved. But the point is, it's not simply, what must I do to be saved? Believe. That's not the answer. It's believe on 
the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what has fueled, for instance, missionary endeavor. It's not, though it has become that in many sectors today, it is not merely the charitable frame of spirit to be kind to other humans. That, of course, is bound up in the heart of Christians. But what fuels missionary enterprise is this. Unless they know of Jesus Christ, they'll never be saved. It's astounding that that offends not only Protestants today, but it even offends Reformed people today. As if to say, telling us what the Bible tells us, that if they don't hear, they can't be saved, is somehow limiting the grace of God. No, we're acknowledging God's Word. What's astounding is that the Reformed historically knew this and were the front-runners of the missionary work, sending missionaries to the New World, sending missionaries to Africa, sending missionaries throughout the world. Why? Because they knew, except Jesus Christ is known, sinners perish for their sins. Saving faith knows that the way of salvation is Jesus Christ. We see it in Christ Himself. When He came preaching, what did He come preaching? The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. And He proclaims Himself. Remember, in the book of Luke, He opens a scroll and He says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon Me, and so on. He rolls it up. And what an astonishing beginning to a sermon. He hands the scroll to the master of the synagogue. And as Luke records it, He began to say, we don't have the whole sermon, but he began to say, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying? I am the Savior. You must realize this, even as a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, a descendant of Abraham, one in the covenant, you must realize that I am the Savior and you must believe upon Me. Remember when he's in conversation and he's talking about uh, himself, albeit in somewhat veiled ways. And this man whom he had previously healed asked the question, well, who is he? And he says, I that speak unto you am he. What's he doing? He's opening the understanding, directing the way of understanding to see that it's Jesus Christ alone who is the Savior. So think of this for a moment. The so-called churches today who say things like, well, all religions are equal. They put their billboards out in their front yard and they say things like, love is love and you know, sincerity is all that matter. All these different catchphrases they have. and you know, You're welcome here. Everyone's welcome, regardless of religion, regardless of this, regardless of the other thing. And we would be happy to put a placard out in front of our building and say, everyone's welcome. But understand this, you are only welcome unto salvation through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. To say otherwise, you understand, is to do significant harm to the undying souls of the multitudes who have no hope outside of Christ. Everyone's welcome to come. Everyone should come. But the church's solitary message must be the only hope for your salvation is in Jesus Christ 
alone. You know, if Paul was one of these woke individuals, you know, you'd think of how Romans 10 would open. And he would say, you know, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, and it's really good, and that's great. And they're a little bit not perfect in God's righteousness, but man, they're really good about let's not criticize them. Let's not say anything negative about them. After all, they're my flesh and blood, and they're the ancient standing people of God. But he comes out with great zeal and earnestness for them, and that love for them makes him, compels him, uh, forces him to acknowledge that they have no hope except in Christ Jesus. And so he says, verse 3, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Brethren, that's not lack of love. That is the epitome, the height of love to say your only hope is in Jesus Christ because Christ is the only hope. Well, saving faith acknowledges that. So we can say this, that so-called churches that say, well, Christ is a way and you can have your way and you know we'll be respectful and we'll be cool and we'll be happy and we'll get on and we'll have joint prayer services and we'll get together. And, you know, Teach me your traditions. We'll encompass those into our traditions and we can have our groups together and so on and all the, and look how happy we are and look how united we are. But what you and I should see is this. A bunch of sinners dead in their sins despising the only way of hope there is. Denying the one way of salvation which is Jesus Christ. Period. The Scriptures affirm most clearly whatever anyone else says that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior. And saving faith acknowledges the same. So saving faith knows this. Christ is everywhere proclaiming it of Himself. His apostles are doing the same. And in today, you have ministers, different denominations, calling people unto Jesus Christ. Saving faith understands this. But notice secondly, what saving faith believes. In verse 14, the question is raised, How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? Now, working backwards in the text goes in the proper order. So the preacher comes and declares. What's the preacher telling? Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second step is to agree with that truth. I see that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. I understand that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of sinners. This is a blessed truth that once one gets it is the cause of endless rejoicing and endless labor on behalf of others. In 2 Corinthians 5, think of the earnestness Paul displays when he's exhorting the church. And he says, verse 18, God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, 
not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So the preacher comes and declares that and says, here's your only hope. What God has done in Christ is your only way of being reconciled to God. Now the one who has saving faith acknowledges that. And those here who have trusted in Christ know by experience both the sobering experience of seeing that and the tremendous wonder when once it's understood. Here, I've been trying my own works. I've been trying this way and that way. I know of a minister who for a season prior to his conversion dabbled in all manner of Eastern uh, religion and all of the mindless meditation that passes for religious piety and all of these things and his sort of facing it and saying all of this is empty. But as he speaks of it, when once he realized that there was a sound way, a true way, that I who am against God should not be reconciled by my works, but by the work that God has undertaken through Christ, I was overwhelmed by the wonder that this is God's doing and not my own. Saving faith sees that, acknowledges that, agrees with it. Not my own works. I cast them from me. It's been mentioned before of David Dixon on his deathbed when he was met by a dear friend of his. And how goes it? I've taken all of my good works and all of my evil works and I've cast them through one another and have fled to Jesus Christ to rest upon Him alone. That's the understanding of saving faith. I have no hope in my good works or my bad works, in my religious works, in my civil works, it's all cast aside. It's all undone. After all, this is what God says. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags before Me. And the one who has saving faith gets that. The one who doesn't, doesn't. The one who doesn't have saving faith somehow tries to mix in with his faith some virtue of his own contribution. He says, well, my conviction's pretty deep and I've put off a bunch of you know, uh, uh, scandalous sin. My mouth used to be filthy, now it's clean. My eyes used to look at things impure, now they don't. I used to speak and listen to things that I ought not to and now I don't do those things. I go to church now diligently and there in the midst of it, it's being shown that saving faith is not at work. Because saving faith realizes it's not my works. It's not my doing. It's not my prayers. It's not my sighings. It's not my cryings. It's not my reforming. It's nothing that I do. Saving faith looks as Paul was earnest to say that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Saving faith agrees with that. And so saving faith renounces not just what is everywhere known as sin, but what others would commend as good. So saving faith, if we could personify it, 
in a discussion with someone who comes and says, look how good things are for you. You know, you used to do these wicked things. What a good person you are now. This is why you should have hope. This is why you should have peace. Saving faith says, not at all. My best works, my most earnest prayer, my most devout meditation is riddled with such wickedness that I confirm what God has said. My righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the presence of God who is most holy. Think of it in Isaiah when he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what does he do? He hears the angels crying. And think of the angels' description. With two wings, they're covering their faces. From what? They've never sinned. They've never had impurity pass through their mind. And yet such is the essential glory of God's holiness that their created and derived glory is so shameful to them that they cover themselves and they can't help but cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And a prophet of the Lord falls down and says, Woe is me! I am undone! From a man of unclean lips. Oh, Isaiah, you're being too hard on yourself. You know, you're a prophet of God. Cheer up. Don't be down and gloomy. You know, don't be this person. You know, we're happy people. We're blessed people. We should be up there with the angels and saying, Angels, you cover your faces, but we're going to rejoice. No, he says, You don't understand. I've seen the holiness of God, and I know what sin is. And I am condemned. What you call little and insignificant in the sight of God is most dreadful. I will be consumed by my sin. Saving faith renounces every other way of salvation. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And God commands an altar, the coal from off the altar. And notice what God says, with this have I cleansed you. That's the message of salvation. It's never what we do. It's what God has done. With this have I cleansed you. Think of how elsewhere in the New Testament, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanseth us from all sin. It's not our works. Certainly we ought to humble ourselves. Certainly we ought to cultivate conviction and examination and all these things. And all of that's right. But none of it is even the smallest contribution to our salvation before God. Because the message which God declares is the message which saving faith acknowledges. My works contribute nothing to my salvation. I renounce my prayers. I renounce my works. I renounce my Sabbath keeping. I renounce my pure speech. I renounce everything because all is imperfect in the sight of a holy God. But I do agree with this. Christ's righteousness is perfect. Why would I rest upon the filthy rags of my own doing when the perfect and faultless righteousness of Christ is there held forth by God saying, here is your salvation. Saving faith 
gets that. You see, at the root, if we were to distinguish between all other false religions, even if they have some semblance of Christianity in them, and true religion, which the Bible teaches, we'll see that at its fundamental nature, here's the difference. However else it's dressed up. Every false religion remains and retains something for the sinner to do to contribute to his salvation. Whereas the Bible's teaching is, there's nothing you can do. It's all done by Christ. Christ alone is the end of righteousness for everyone that believes. But we ought not to stop here because one may be very convinced that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that there's no salvation outside of Him. There's no salvation by our contribution. There's no salvation by our prayers, by our tears, by our fastings, all of these things. Howsoever right those things are to do, we may acknowledge that none of them contribute to our soul's saving. We may even go so far as to look at our confession of faith and we come to the chapter on saving faith and we would sign our name and say this is the Bible's teaching. It is by faith alone and Christ alone that a sinner is justified and saved. And whereas we acknowledge the truth, we yet may be without owning the truth. James 2 speaks of this in a different way when he says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Here's the point. Whereas saving faith agrees with what is revealed about salvation, it doesn't stop there. Here's something to think about. Satan agrees with the way of salvation. He knows it. He knows it perfectly in and out. He's a better theologian than anyone here. He is more orthodox in his understanding than any of the church fathers, than any of the reformers, than any stalwart today in any of the best seminaries. He knows the Bible through and through and understands it with clarity. And yet surely none of us would say that his understanding is equal to saving faith. This is James' point when he's saying, you believe that God is one, you do well. That's right. That's orthodox. You ought to believe as much. That's what you're supposed to do. You shouldn't do otherwise than that. But let's not pat ourselves on the back yet because I can point out the demons who do the same and tremble. If they weren't as wicked and malicious, they would be compelled, if we can get this clear in our minds, to say, the teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith on this topic is faultless. I agree to it. I acknowledge it. The teaching of the Bible in all that it says is perfectly true. Every demon, if they weren't deceivers, would acknowledge the same. And yet none of them is without this saving faith. So whereas it knows has understanding, whereas it agrees with, it believes what is said about the truth and way of salvation. Thirdly, notice what saving faith does. It 
so simply stated here as it is elsewhere. Verse 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not just the thinking to oneself, I know that's true, I agree with it, yep, so on. But there is then the calling upon Him, save me. There is the crying out to Him. And so it includes knowledge, it includes this ascent, but it also includes trust, calling out to Him for salvation. In other words, it's not only understanding, though it includes it, It's not only acknowledging, though it includes that. It is with that the calling upon Him whom we understand to be the Savior and whom we acknowledge to be the Savior. Thus, you think of the Scriptures how in simplicity it uses similar language. Christ Himself. He says, come unto Me. Christ Himself says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. What's His point? Everyone who looks to Him shall be saved. Isaiah 55, as God exhorts, everyone that thirsteth. What is He going to say? Come. Think of how simple it is for children to get this point. They're thirsty in this weather. They run outside. It's not as hot as it used to be, but they run around. They're sweaty. And we put a cup of water before them and we say, Do you believe that water quenches thirst? Yep, I believe that. Do you believe that this water would quench your thirst? Yes, Mom, I believe it. They don't then say, so I'm going to pass it by. I'm I'm now satisfied. My thirst is quenched. No, they take the cup and they chug down the water until their soul is satisfied. Well, similarly, we have tons of people today who are willing to say, I acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior. I agree that He's the Savior, but are content to point Him out even to others without themselves ever having called upon Him as their own Savior. Calling upon Him is that expression of trust. Now, it may be weak trust. We see it, for instance, in the life of Peter. Christ is walking on the water in the midst of the storm. Peter cries out, If it be you, call me out to you and I'll come. Christ says, Come. Peter starts to walk. He takes his eyes off of the Savior, sees the waves. He begins to become overwhelmed. He sinks down. But what happens? He cries out, Lord, save me. And Christ saves him. Now if we were to pause time at that moment and were to analyze all of the knowledge and insight and understanding and all of the depth and detail of Peter's consciousness, surely we would not have found a well-formed and articulate faith at that moment, but we would have found faith as expressed in his crying out, Lord, save me! So the point is, saving faith may be weak, saving faith may be not as informed as it ought to, Saving faith may not be as mature as it ought to, but where there's saving faith, there's the knowledge, think of Lord, save me, knowledge of Christ the Savior, and the crying out to Him to save. Someone says, well, that's not all that interesting, and certainly it's not all that virtuous. You know, Peter was taking his eyes off of Christ, and he had gotten himself into a mess. If he had just walked with his eyes on Christ, He'd have been fine. But think for a moment of all of our own doings. 
every aspect of our sin is because of our rebellion against Him. And the world comes and says, well, fix yourself up and get yourself right and so on. And though there is the need, of course, to repent, as we'll see, and the need, of course, to be reformed in our thoughts and actions, yet it's not our actions which save us. It is Christ who saves us, and He, by His grace, causes us to call upon Him. We can whittle this down to note that what the Bible is teaching is trust. Trusting Christ to save us. This is a subtle thing that we need to pay attention to. Because there may, in the midst of big conviction which comes, a mixture of all sorts of uh, warring thoughts, and subtly, our very petitions as religious as they may sound, are actually veiled appeals for God to save us because of what we're doing. So you think of someone gets in conviction and they say, God save me, I'll never do that again. Well, they're calling upon the name of the Lord, but not as He's revealed Himself. Because He doesn't say, call upon me to save you for what you're going to do. Others will come and say, God... I'm so guilty and so shamed by my guilt. I'm never going to do that again. And there's peace that comes to their conscience. Their conscience, which was alarmed, is for the moment satisfied. They think, well, I'm okay. But they actually never cried out and said, there's no hope for me, but you save me. You see, what saving faith does, as you'll remember, it acknowledges the only way of salvation in Christ. It agrees with the only way of salvation with Christ, by Christ. And thus it renounces everything else and sets itself naked in all of its unrighteousness and filth and says to Christ Jesus, my only hope is that You would save me. So I don't come to scrub up myself morally and get myself right I come to you to save me. Think of this woman with the issue of blood, just as one illustration. She, who had this issue of blood for multiple years, spent all that she had, grew nothing better but only worse, right? All of her activity did nothing to help her, it only worsened her case. All of her visits to doctors and physicians, nothing got better, it only grew worse. Christ is passing by. And she says within herself, if I would but touch the hem of His garment, I'll be whole. That's the understanding of saving faith. But saving faith then reaches out to touch the hem of His garment. And as soon as she did, she's whole. Now obviously, there are other things at work there. Her physical misery and so on. But it illustrates the point of saving faith. It's not contentious to say, if I would... I would be, but it then goes forward and reaches, as it were, out to Christ and takes what He holds forth to us. Now here's something as well to remember. The only reason that saving faith has any hope to do that is because Christ says, the one who believes on Me shall be saved. It's Christ who's calling us to that. If He didn't do it, none of us would have any right to reach out to Him. None of us would have any right to call out to Him. But He has been full in His expression of His 
willingness to save all who call upon Him. And notice Romans 10, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If someone believes that, they don't just defend the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They actually call upon Christ to be saved. Because faith doesn't just agree with it. It actually calls upon God to do it. And here's something to challenge yourself with. Are you contented just with agreeing? Or is there any actual crying out to Him to save you? Because orthodox people go to hell. To understand it and to forego calling out upon Him is actually revealing something about your wickedness. That in spite of the fact that God has made it plain to you, in spite of the fact that you acknowledge it's true, such is your desire to be saved by your own works that you would refuse the only thing you yourself acknowledge to be true and content yourself with what you're going to do. Saving faith does not just acknowledge, but cries out to Him. There are many ways that saving faith is described. We've seen this calling upon Him, Matthew 10, coming unto Him. We have it in Isaiah, look unto Me. We have it in John 1, verse 12, as many as received Him have the right to be the sons of God to as many as believe on Him as it's later described. But notice, all of those have in common this. They aren't content just to know about. In various ways, it's expressing that they're taking hold of. They're crying out to Him, save me. They're taking hold of His offer. So you think of how beautifully our own catechism words this. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. It is God who freely offers to us the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice this. It's not enough just to defend the free offer of the Gospel. We need that. But saving faith takes hold of what's offered. To refuse it would be the height of impiety. God's offering this to me and I refuse it? That's wickedness in me. Some of you need to hear this. You say to yourself, I'm too wicked. I'm too sinful. My sins are too many. They're up over my head. God would not save me. And what you're actually doing is you're denying the truth of His Word. Your sins, I deny not, are horrible. And I'll add to it, they're far worse than you understand. That if you were to see them in the same light that God saw you, your soul would not be able to bear your grief and you would perish physically right now. Such would be the alarm and the overwhelming reality of conviction. Your sins are worse than you think at the highest conviction you've ever experienced. But... Howsoever heinous, wicked, full of iniquity they are, God's Word is true when He says, Whosoever 
shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To think otherwise is to call God a liar. So as we close, we see here saving faith requires instruction. And so the Bible is given to instruct us. It's astounding the trends of our culture which are dumbing down understanding in so many different ways not least of which is in the church. And so we think, you know, people can't understand and so we have to shorten things and do these things and ignore, you know, catechesis. Who wants to do catechism? That's boring. It's propositional truth. And of course, religious truth is more than propositional truth, which of course we affirm. But as the Bible teaches, men need to know the truth. They need to understand it. And so they need to be taught and informed and instructed and corrected and reproved and so on. Because if saving faith is to exercise itself in trust, it needs to know what it's trusting. Paul reasoned in the synagogue. He didn't just say, well, let's talk about feelings and how this makes you feel. He went toe-to-toe with some of the elite philosophers of his day. And he was arguing for Christ above every other. But whereas saving faith needs it, saving faith embraces what it learns. And so this is something for us to consider. Am I growing in my knowledge, whether as a believer or unbeliever for that matter, but then I need to ask, am I embracing that knowledge regarding Christ? Am I trusting? Am I calling upon Him to save me? Because Satan is content for you to grow and increase in your orthodoxy so long as you do not call upon Him who is taught to you. And so take the moment to consider, am I trusting, am I calling upon Him as my Savior? I need you. Save me. Psalmist, what a beautiful expression in Psalm 119. Save me. I am yours. What a precious thing to turn into prayer. Do not be satisfied with learning, though press on in your learning. We need learning. But be satisfied only in your embracing of Him whom you learn about. Someone asks, but what encouragement do I have to trust in Him? Let me answer with one word from the Bible. The word whosoever. It's true there are some Calvinists who don't know what to do with this word and they do all sorts of gymnastics to say things that it doesn't mean. But let's be simple with what the Bible's saying. The Bible calls upon every man, every woman, every child with this promise. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Get knotted up and say, well, how does that work with the decrees? How does that work with God's sovereignty? And we don't deny. Paul's already stated in Romans 9 as we've considered in other times the absolute sovereignty of God, but here is the clear ground of our reason for hope. God Himself says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so it is. If you have trusted, if you have saving faith, praise God for that. But if you find yourself without it, here is God's call to you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the Lord calls you to call upon Him in Jesus Christ 
and assures you that as you do, you shall be saved. Would you stand with me?